Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5, featuring four friends wandering through the wilderness of Season 5. My name is Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Junana, as well as Richard. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for allowing me to uh, bullshit with y'all about these terrible, terrible episodes. (laughs) I'm very much looking forward to you saying some things about these terrible, terrible episodes. We're very excited to have you here. Yes. We're in a season five vibe, y'all. And really, <laughs> it's... that That's really all you have to say? I mean, yeah. anybody who has seen the show will know. I yeah. mean, we, we started out and we were like, okay, you know, we're we're three for four on good episodes. And then we were like... Okay, we're three and a half for six on good episodes, and now I think we're four for eight yeah, on good no, episodes. I'd, I'd say that, that. I'd say that, that ratio is slowly <laughs> sliding. <laughs> Our um, batting average is just like ooh, that's some golden gonna, sombreros we're wearing. Perhaps not unlike JMS's sanity as he was writing this season. Yeah, well. I have a suspicion though that episode eight is going to be the last one. For a while, where we're gonna, it's gonna start to get, it's gonna start to get away from him after episode eight, <laughs> like it hasn't already. <laughs> before, um, before yeah. we get too far into this, I want to have our guest introduce himself. Oh yes, yes, the introduction, as it were. Uh, I am Richard Kreutzlandry. I am a software engineer by day, uh, and by night I uh, tweet bad puns. Um, I'm a game designer. Uh, I'm doing Descent into Midnight, which is a game about psionic sea creatures uh, on an alien planet defending their underwater city. Uh, it's, it's very weird and it's very yeah. cool. Uh, so if you happen to want to follow me on Twitter or the Descent into Midnight uh, on Twitter, which is just D-I-M-R-P-G, uh, you will get pictures of weird, terrifying creatures from the depths. And it's great. I can't say enough good things about Descent into Midnight. It has been my favorite con game for the last, uh, well, less pandemic, uh, the last like five years. Pre-pandemic, yeah. Um, I, I, it's a terrific game, uh, and it has been just an absolute joy to play uh, with you and your other creators and everybody that I've ended up at a table with. So I, I can't recommend people seek it out enough. Well, I mean, uh, I am very much looking forward to the next convention uh, that we can go to safely um, and being able to to sit down with y'all and, and play because I have missed it. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a game that plays very well in person, too, with mm-hmm. the, you know, various there, there's some like you can draw a map. And, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's there's a lot to be said for making, uh, you know, tentacle face hand gestures when the big creepy nasty thing shows up. So, yeah, yep. yeah. that too. Oh, yeah. All right. And because it is uh, required for me to ask Jude, Anna, how you doing? <laughs> the house is quiet. So blissfully quiet. 
And I'll leave it at that. I spent today dealing with a uh, Severity 2 security incident uh, arising from a zero-day exploit in Log4j version 2. Oh, I have that. ideas of what that means. I'm very sorry. I'm glad you, you made it here. All right. Tonight, we are covering two episodes, one of which has a very distinct and dubious honor. Um, <laughs> those episodes are Season 5, Episodes 7 and 8, Secrets of the Soul and Day of the Dead. Um, I'm going to take it from the word count of the first summary that Jude has uh, Secrets of the Soul, so take us away. <laughs> you can go to hell. <laughs> yes, I did, in fact, write the summary for Season Five, episode seven, Secrets of the Soul, uh, written by JMS, directed by Tony Dow. Boy, this episode's a roller coaster. Uh, I have split this episode <laughs> summary into two parts. Uh, the part that is fun and weird, and then the part that is weird and and grim and and just dark. Um, dark enough that I have to put a content warning about like mm. genocide at the mm. start yeah. of it. We're so going to be talking have... about genocide here, and it's not in, like the fun, fun way we talk about nuclear weapons. Yeah, where it's yeah. like it's like, listen, I mean, we're, we're when it's when it's war crimes, we're all it's all fun and games. But um... <laughs> yeah, this is like a if you if you have you know legitimate sensitivities to the extermination of of a people. We're gonna get into that, so yeah. just well, a we'll heads like, up. We'll put like a, we'll put like a. If you wanted to skip to Day of the Dead, we'll put like a a nice little timestamp in the episode for like this yeah. is when Day of the Dead's gonna start, and then we'll, yep. you know, fifty six minutes and forty five seconds. All right, take us away. Warding aside, let's go. Uh, the episode starts with a somber voiceover as Franklin reminds us that he is no longer just a sex pest in chief of the med lab. Now he's finally got a big boy job and he's cataloging all the various ailments of each species, ostensibly to prevent cross-species STD breakouts at the behest of Delenn and Jakar. We see him scanning a Pacmara. Which, hold on, I, I gotta stop you there. I gotta stop you there. So the Pacmara uh, has a translator device and it's a little ball that lights up yeah. when, when they talk. It's, it's definitely not an ood. But that's that's the thing is I'm thinking is there just like a rule that if you have tentacles on your face you need to have like balls in your hand to be able to speak? Is <laughs> is that just like a thing that I am not aware of? I hadn't thought about that, but that's a really good point. I hope so. I hope that that's a rule somewhere because because I feel like, you know, that that's a whole genre of hentai that, you know, that needs to be explored by somebody. <laughs> He scans this Pakmara, and the Pakmara tells him that they are the chosen of God, uh, and they can eat anything they want without consequences, except fish. Uh, apparently, that's a no go. Franklin chats with him about this fact, uh, and then tries him to get a bear to drink a barium contrast so that they can do a scan. Uh, the Pakmara is not into it. He's like, "Fuck this," uh, which I get. I have both because I've drunk barium contrasts. And they taste like someone sneezed up a banana milkshake into a cup full of chalk. And also because would you drink a glass of something Franklin handed you? I don't think so. Uh, recognizing that he lacks the bedside manner to get the, the poor alien to drink the stuff, Franklin passes him off to a nurse and moves on. Continuing his voiceover, 
talking about how everyone is extremely cooperative, even the Pac Mara, who then proceeds to blow chunks all over the inside of the window. Uh, and again, I feel you, Mr. Pac Mara. I too have vomited barium copiously. It's not fun. It's even worse on the way out than the way in. Well, and notably, the nurse who is there, she just she like just turns yeah. and walks out. It's like, nope, no thank you. And literally she walks by him and I'm like, no one is saying, oh, gee, I need to clean this up or like anything. It's just, nope, just gone. goodbye. Yeah. Well, in fairness, the Pacamara eats, like their dining rule is let it rot for five days first. So when it comes back out of a Pacamara, can you fucking imagine? It's bad. Um... In the arrivals hall, a security pig has summoned his boss, Zach, because a bunch of telepaths have shown up with little money and expired IDs looking for Byron. He knows they're telepaths, clearly, but he's trying, he's obviously hoping for some excuse to not follow the rules. Alan is grumping about how many have arrived when Byron makes a timely, if pompous, arrival, deftly shutting down all of Alan's vacuous objections, collecting the new telepaths. As he turns to go, Alan calls after Lita, who arrived with Byron, looking very coupley, uh, asking if she can spare a moment to talk to him. In the elevator, Peter, one of the new telepaths, tells Byron he's been practicing since they last met and shows Byron how much he's improved. He takes out a metal baseball-looking thing and telekinetically lifts it up in the air about a fucking foot or so above his hand for a second. Byron praises him and all the telepaths look impressed, like, no shit, it's impressive. Last I heard, sliding a penny across a table was impressive as far as telekinesis was concerned. And this guy's just juggling iron ingots like it's no fucking big deal. In any case, uh, as it turns out, Zach doesn't so much want to talk to Lita as lecture her condescendingly about those people in general and Byron in particular. I feel like this episode probably is a recycled script that was originally intended for Garibaldi and Talia back in season one or two. Because this scene reeks of Garibaldi's gross machismo and the way that he patriarchically condescended to Talia back in the early seasons. Mm -hmm. Like I literally have in my notes, Zach continues the mantle of being a clueless dickbag. Yeah, it's not <laughs> great. And he doesn't he doesn't even have the like veneer of intelligence that Garibaldi does. My very no. next line is apparently JMS forgot that Zach is a himbo, not a racist cop. But I guessed ACAB and all that. Excuse me. Hold on. No, 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 no. We have officially ruled that Zach is not a himbo. I mean, he's he, he's he got the, like, he's kind of big. He's kind of hunky. But the problem is he's nice with a capital N. Yeah. That's you a know? great way of putting it. Yeah. Well, when he first showed up, he was a himbo. He was definitely dumb, nice, and gullible. But he is segued out of that the whole time like out of that as time has gone on but then he switches back like the other episode where he was like mom dad don't argue i don't like saffron like he has these moments where he falls back on that i think he can have moments of it but i will i will not call him one because under the he, he has done an accidental fascism and that uh yeah fair yeah enough. yeah anyway this scene really broke uh, any hope for me of him being one because he is a raging bag of shit to Lita in this scene. Mm -hmm. Lita accuses Zach of being jealous, which he is. And he's like, rum, rum, jealous, rum, rum, rum. And she's like, okay, then let me read your fucking mind. You goddamn troll. He, <laughs> he makes like, a, he makes faces and grumps. 
And then she just unloads on him. Everything we have said in the last four seasons about how fucking shitty her her deal on Bab 5 has been, about how they treat her like shit. She got used like a goddamn Hydra spanner in the last couple of seasons, just treated like, like a tool and then discarded by the Vorlons, by the command staff, whatever, what have you. She just lays it out on the table and Zach just sits there like, I can't respond to this. I'm just going to sit here and hope that she stops talking to me and walks away. Even the shitty apartment stuff. It was very satisfying to hear Lita yeah. unload mm-hmm. all this on him. It's it's like she was listening to our podcast. Yeah. And yeah, making yeah. note of all the things that we had grievances with as far as her character. And she's like, with Byron, I'm a person. And it's like, yeah, no mm-hmm. wonder she likes these people. They treat her like a fucking sentient being. I will say, though, that I do not like her hair in this scene. It's got a weird, like, double tier then down thing. It's it's. It's it's a '90s thing. I, I that's think. Fu- that's is, fine. It is just it the thing weird. with the bump where you get the little plastic like headband yeah. that you put under the hair that they were selling for a while? Yeah, it's I weird. think that's how they. I think that that's how they're like getting her hair to be fluffy like that in the front, mm-hmm. and it looks weird because I don't think that her hair texture naturally is fluffy in any yeah. way. Doesn't look like it. Meanwhile, Byron leading his new telepaths to their home encounters a bunch of lurkers who don't appreciate their presence. The ringleader tries to get aggressive, but Byron diffuses the confrontation by telling the man to hit him three sequential times to the man's rising confusion. After the third hit, he gets in real close inside the man's personal space and asks him if he got anything from the third hit that he didn't get from the first. And if not, what would he expect to get from more? This leaves the attacker befuddled and frankly unmanned in front of his cronies, and they all stand around looking like they've just been pantsed as the telepaths walk past them. Back in the swanky telepath cult den, Byron is sulking about the inevitability of violence in men when Lita enters and completely ignores his sulking to clean up his face and call him an idiot. While he lectures her about the fallacy of a government based on violence, she tells him he did his best, but she's still all ready to go out and fight and stuff. He flirts to distract her, which leads him to asking her to stay the night with them slash him. Uh, She says that she doesn't feel like she fits in enough. And to prove otherwise, he invites the whole coven of telepaths to embrace her, which feels super off-putting in these days of COVID and COVID-enhanced introversion slash agoraphobia. Like, the whole scene feels gross and weird and touchy. It's real sex culty. It Well, and... and It's like it starts out and you're watching it and it's like, oh, okay. he brings her out and you're like, you're getting the vibes that he's going to like, you know, say something and and reassure her. But it's as somebody who grew up in a very sort of like a very churchy atmosphere with a, a small church that was very tight knit. This is just the most like cringe inducing manipulative bullshit because mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. like he's like no, look, everyone else loves you and accepts you and we totally accept you. And like, if she's into it, that's one thing. But if she's not, if if she's in a place where she is not okay or she's unsure about it, what is she supposed to do, right? Because these people all come up to her and like the moment once once they like surround her and start giving her the, okay, there are too many hands on me at once, but it's fine because this is a cult. It's like, 
it this scene makes my skin crawl. It's real oh. cringe. Yeah. yeah. And she she ends up like trapped in there really yeah. fast. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like a a pile of people all mashing in on her and she's got this like you're supposed to think that she's like embracing the feel of being embraced by her fellow telepaths, Whoa. but I get the feeling Pat- Patricia Tolman wasn't into this scene because her sp- her smile in the scene does not look particularly enthusiastic. It's it's bad and should feel. I bad. also feel yeah. like Lita. We've never had evidence that Lita is a particularly touchy feely person mm-hmm. either. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, back on the Zocalo. A group of telepaths, including our new friend, telepathic Peter, are shopping, and he gets left behind by a full elevator, which is kind of a dick move by his friends. Um, yeah, seriously. Like, you're going to leave the new guy to get lost? Yeah. Yeah. He catches the next elevator alone and somehow ends up in the wrong part of the down below. He runs into the goons that beat up Byron, and despite throwing a pipe at one of them telekinetically, they beat the high holy shit out of him. Uh, he is rushed to med lab where Byron and Lita rush in and tell Franklin to take special care of him as he's a special case, which is demonstrated when, as he goes into shock, he throws a tray full of knives and beakers and shit across the room. Uh, Franklin is not nearly fucking freaked out enough by this as he should be, but says that he will do his best. And I, I love that, like that earlier in the episode, we get a nurse who's like, Oh, a pock mirage is puked. Nope. I'm out. And yet in this scenario, when it's like, yeah, there are <laughs> scalpels flying around telekinetically, they're like, yeah, okay, no, whatever, yeah. we're, we're just, just going to do our that, jobs. I, honestly, that's very, that's for everything. Another Tuesday. From everything I've learned about nurses, that's very, like, run of the mill. I mean, fair. <laughs> yeah. If you ever, if you ever want to get grossed out, or if you have a weak stomach, don't go to a restaurant with a group of nurses. <laughs> especially ones who are all, you know, like, currently practicing, because, um... My my mom told the story of when she was in nursing school. They all went to a restaurant after uh, after work or after class or whatever, and they got kicked out <laughs> because they were stories. just like, "Oh, oh, this soup reminds me of insert bodily fluid." Yikes! <laughs> uh, th- there is one thing I appreciate about that scene, though, um, where like Byron's like, "Why aren't you in there helping him?" and Franklin's like, "I'm the trauma team." Is handling it. Mm-hmm. I delegated. Yeah. Which finally he does something competent. I know. I and know. Also, do you, it, it really demonstrates how little Byron knows about the rest of the station that he wants Franklin treating his his patient. <laughs> but like, where was this two two seasons ago? Yeah. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Uh. So Byron leaves Peter in med lab to go and try and find the rest of his followers. Uh, as he is concerned about what they are up to, as he should be, uh, because when he tracks them down, they are creepy, the shining twin walking down a hall, chasing one of the assailants, making him think he's on fire. This guy is like, "Ah, I didn't do anything, but I'm on fire. I would just like to point out one trying to tell a telepath you didn't do something (laughs) seems futile. Yeah. They, they know what you did. They're in your head. They're making you think you're on fire. What, just, just stop. Pro, just say you're sorry. Just say, oh, fuck, I fucked up. I'm sorry. Why are you trying to protest? Maybe don't burn me. Yeah, don't burn. Yes, yes, precisely. Don't burn me. Don't burn Byron me, Byron gets there and he's like, 
hey, it's me, chill. And they're like, I guess. And they peace out just in time for Zach to show up and find only Byron there, like trying to calm this guy down who thinks he's been on fire. And Zach, jealous pig that he is this episode, immediately assumes that it was Byron that attacked this guy, despite the fact that he is like clearly in like a comforting pose with this guy. I don't know. There's nothing about this scene that looks like Byron is threatening, but he's like, I got you, motherfucker. And Lita standing there, apparently having followed Zach, is like, really? Really, you dumb shithead? This is what we're going with? Uh, and Zach just gives her this look like, yeah, I don't like him because he's seen your boobies or something <laughs> like that. And hauls Byron off to, to the holding cell. Also, despite the fact that Byron is in was in med lab like eight seconds ago and probably mm-hmm. could not have done the attack whatever in the holding cell byron immediately demands to be allowed to talk to his followers hoping to prevent further retribution attacks but the guard completely ignores him and smugly tells him that he can make calls in the morning uh meanwhile byron tries to reach out telepathically to his followers but all he can feel is their anger and violence shockingly when mr fiery pants wakes up The only thing he remembers is that Byron saved him, much to Zack's furious chagrin. He's further shamed when he tries to give Byron the third degree about the guy they found beaten to death over the overnight. And Byron immediately blames his death squarely on Zack, saying that if he hadn't been locked up for no reason, he could have prevented it. Zack at least has the good grace to look ashamed of himself. Okay. Buckle up, motherfuckers. Here we go. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no. No. Back in the telepath cult uh, den, Byron's not doing great. His lessons of nonviolence have apparently not sunk in very deep, and he's taking it pretty hard. Speaking of taking I mean, it pretty hard, Lita has an idea how to cheer God him up. It. Oh, my God. She, I hate this. Here's, hate here's, this podcast. here's quit the podcast. thing. <laughs> she literally says, and I quote, rest in me, emphasis on in. Yeah. Because, yeah. oh, boy. She assures him that he did everything he could and that she understands why they did it. She tells him to rest in her, if only for a little while, referencing back to the awful Willow story. (laughs) She undresses for him in what is the least sexy scene I've ever seen. This is is, and it's going from like zero to naked in like zero point five seconds, and like not in a not in a hot way. No, and then she pauses there, like with her with her fists in front of her breasts, and it's like, oh, by the way. I don't know what's going to happen. I was experimented on by the Vorlons. I might cook your brain while we're banging. And this is the only, the only, sure. The only legitimate, authentic part of this whole scene. Byron, like any man, about four seconds from getting laid, hears none of that and is just like, okay, let's go. All right. Yep. Yep. (laughs) It's completely on board in the moment. Ugh. Got it. Okay. We then segue uh. to a really badly shot scene of the two of them making the beast with two backs while the whole cult it's, is yeah. like right there on the other side of like a shower curtain. Can't they yeah, get you, you get the shot. You get the shot of like the some lady who's like sleeping or something and like lifts her head from the pillow and it's like, ah, I sense a disturbance in the force. It's right over there. Yeah, can Beyond you imagine this. being a telepath 
and being like half asleep. And then you just suddenly pick up two people begging. You don't uh, need to be a telepath. They're oh like three feet away. Oh yeah. There's you you could you have at least two other senses that are gonna alert you to what's going on. I mean, I was honestly surprised at that point that it didn't just turn into an orgy. Because I guess the only reason it didn't is because 90s, you know, network TV as opposed to, yeah. you know, if prestige If on TV. HBO, it 100% would Yeah. <laughs> so as they start banging, uh, Byron starts seeing her memories about being taken by the Vorlons, uh, her neck gills. Uh, being beaten around by Kosh 2.0, all the stuff we've seen. Uh, and then suddenly we're in new territory. Lita is in a back to tank. Uh, her eyes go Vorlon mode. Uh, and then suddenly the other telepaths in the cult den, apparently getting this vision on broadcast somehow, wake up and see what Byron is seeing through her. I don't know. Uh, Lita in her tank with Vorlons overseeing her looks out and sees infants in other tanks being grown by the Vorlons. Vast rows of them, just fucking giant rows of people in tanks being grown or experimented on. I don't know. It's not clear what's happening. And the special effects here are very like, this would look good on a CRT in 1992 or whenever the hell it was. But who boy, even when you're looking at it on your, your cell phone, it's just like, Ooh, this is, this is dire. Yeah. Yeah, it looks like a shrinky dink being held up behind a, in a fish tank. It it's rough. It's there with like the the Borg, um, like the neonatal Borg drone. It looks very Borgish. For yeah, a, like a hot second, and I was like, did I fall asleep and like change streaming services? If the everything that has come up to this point has not killed your boner, it's like here we go, folks. This is yeah. uh, this is goodbye weird, territory. Weird floating baby statues will do it. I, I mean, not not to kink shame anybody, but I'm well. Yeah. Actually, I don't know if well, that's your kink. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm happy legit. to kink shame on this. Yeah, I think we can kink shame about baby statues. <laughs> As the vision finishes, and so does Byron, presumably, uh, the telepaths look on, fucking creepily. And then in the next scene, what appears to be literally seconds later, Byron is half dressed, but Lita is like still under the sheet. It it really is. He teleports into his clothes, uh, apparently. In a rage. Like like anything in 90s television. (laughs) Yeah. Byron is pissed at the discovery that the Vorlons created telepaths tinkering with the genetics of various species to make weapons against the the shadows. He is raging over this new information that they have somehow gleaned from this buckwild vision that they've all seen. They exist in their oppressed state to serve the other races, basically. Uh, And now he wants compensation. Stat. He wants a homeworld, he's decided, out of fucking nowhere. And if the Alliance isn't down with that, he's going to give them no other choice. Pacifist peacemaker Byron has done a hard heel turn here and lita looks fucking sad and freaked out and just like poor lita man i mean she just can't catch a break she gets laid one time she lets Mm -hmm. lets her guard down one time to get laid now this yeah uh she just has the worst luck and choice in people yeah (laughs) so that's the end of her plot 
Now, believe it or not, that's not the shittiest plot in this season, in this show, no. uh, this episode. This is, I think the second part, this is a better plot. It's just sadder. Yeah, it's a better plot. Well, it's just. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because I, no. I feel like the other plot is is rough because of the content. This one is rough because uh, of the execution. It, it, it's just it is the creepiest. You want to give them credit for saying, "Hey, this is going to be the reveal for this big thing, and it's going to be terrible, and it's going to be this big turning point for Byron, and all this." But it's we're going to dress it up in a sex position thing. But yeah, the <laughs> literal sex but, position. God. Well, I mean, because that's the whole Game of Thrones things, right? Is well, we need to tell people things about the politics, but let's throw some boobies in there so that people will pay attention. Um, it's like it, it's like that, but it's done so poorly that it's like it's not functioning on the level of actually being sexy. Yeah, it's just weird yeah. and off-putting, and so it's like the if you want to have that turn you have to execute well in the beginning to make that shift. And it's just like, oh, this is wrong and bad right from the beginning. And so it just feels off. Yeah. My my headcanon on this is partly that um, at least I personally hope that all of the like visions of the like wax goo babies. <laughs> the wax cabbage patch children. <laughs> yeah. Uh was also a boner killer for Byron, so he's just like really mad about having blue balls. Maybe, <laughs> yeah. That's why he's so angry. Oh my god! <laughs> That's found, my head. Okay. Kitten, found least. out that found out that he was created by the Vorlons and didn't finish. Mm. That would put you in a bad mood. All right, yeah. I'm on board. Okay, let's uh, get on to lighter subjects. <laughs> you know, like genocide. genocide. Um, all right, so in our B plot, where B is for boy, howdy, did this get grim fast? Uh, let's talk about Franklin. Um, am I going to can we not? I mean, uh, apparently we have to because he is the star of our B plot. Um, uh... am I going to let the tone of this B plot stop me from dunking on him periodically? No, I am not. Franklin is hard at work, and for once, we don't mean putting the dubious moves on an unsuspecting patient. But instead, he's actually working, talking to the Hayek ambassador to get them all in on the whole medical sharing scheme. They've never allowed access to their medical data before so that it can't be used against them, they say, in, med- in biogenic warfare. And he assures them that he will not let anyone else have access to it. <sighs> the ambassador's aide, Kieran, shows up late and then stridently busts into the conversation to ask if he died to protect their secrets. He looks confused, but assures them that this data is triple secure. It only, it'll only it delete itself if there's even one bad password oh, attempt, God. which is some horseshit, no, man. No, it, yep. That's not how this works. No. And then the ambassador, uh, but he says, yes, if you put a gun to my head and tried to get the password out of me, I would give you the wrong password and it would delete and or you could shoot me, whatever. After he leaves, Kieran confronts the ambassador, saying this is a mistake. But the ambassador says the elders have spoken. They need to stay in the alliance. But what if he finds out, she says. Finds out what? Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Back in MedLab, Franklin is doing his research and has discovered, to his annoyance, that all records of the Hayak stop 800 years ago, 
uh, despite being a 7,000-year-old civilization. Kieran shows up with more records for him, and when he asks her about it, she's just like, you've got the conclusions of all of our science. What, are you, what more do you need? Uh, and he's like, that's not how this works. Like, you can't just give me, like, the, the, sum, the, the thesis and the summary. You got to give me, like, all of it. And she's like, yeah, fuck off. I don't really feel like it. Uh, she is soups unhelpful, which you would have thought that they would have figured out this would make him more curious. And it does. Uh, it leads him to the obvious conclusion that they are hiding something. So he starts digging. I have to say, I'm super uncomfortable with him behaving like a, a competent scientist mm-hmm. here. It's a new season, Jude. I mean, we've had this for like a well, year now, buddy. I think what they did is they were like, okay, we have to balance it out, though. So you've got Franklin doing something that actually kind of makes sense. And then you have the security system where he's like, listen, if I, you know, uh, oh, I don't know, get take a bunch of stims and get real tired and make a typo, this whole thing is going to be deleted. There's only one copy, and I'm the only person who knows the password. Um if my I like, just, space cat walks across the keyboard, it's gone. I yeah. refuse. I refuse to believe that this is a thing. That this is not a thing. I mean, no. I I have to assume he was lying to them. It, uh, he yeah. has to be lying. Well, to and them. the funniest thing too is that in the scene where he's you know talking to the ambassador and the ambassador's assistant, um, the ambassador is like, "Oh yes," and the data will be waiting for you. You know, by the time that you get to the med lab, and I'm like, "It's on the server somewhere, man." How is that going to happen if? The only way, like, if this database is so secure that no one can get into it, how is that data going to make its way there? Uh, Similarly, when when Kieran shows up, he's, like, not even looking at her. And she's like, here's the record you asked for. He's like, yeah, just leave them there. Mm -hmm. Like, by the open door where I'm not looking. (laughs) It made me laugh really hard. In unlabeled data crystals. Yes. Uh, anyway, I, I, I have other points about this, but I think we can get into them in the discussion later. section. Yeah, I'm almost done. I swear. The discussion section, unlike what we've been doing thus far. <laughs> Bite me. <laughs> uh, as Franklin watches over the apparently recovering Peter, he starts digging in via the classic sci-fi trope of talking to a computer, then taking a nap. I wish I was kidding. This is like literally every science fiction show <laughs> I've ever watched has had someone ask a computer a question, be told that it will take some time to make the query and then take a nap and then be woken up when the computer gets back to him. This in, is how I install in, video games. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, this is a thing I've seen on literally every show. This is also how I run simulations. I'm not saying it's inaccurate. I'm just saying I, it's I a tell thing the cluster to do the thing and then I take a nap and then it's done. It may be a trope for a reason. I'm just saying. He has asked for the records of other races that uh, might have been related to the Hayek from around 800 years ago, and he gets some hits about something called the Hayek Do. He gets a video record of a race saying that they found a Hayek Do, but according to their agreements, they had to turn it back over to the Hayek, and he gets some more records, and what he learns horrifies him so much that he leaves MedLab with the printouts in hand, only to be ambushed by Kieran, who puts a gun to the back of his head and orders him to follow her. She leads him to the docking base. I'm not sure what her plan here is. I, I think she maybe was going to, like, space him. I don't know. Uh, but Shoot I, him and space him. Yeah, I guess. Uh, but on the way, they run into the ambassador who shows up, and uh, the truth eventually is laid out. The Hayek, though, were the Hayek's, like, Neanderthals, for all intents and purposes, a parallel line uh, with a common ancestor that evolved next to them 
But in their case, they did not die out. They lived and evolved together uh, and eventually began interbreeding. But the Hayek started setting out religious laws against this intermarriage, uh, which became civil laws and then eventually became pogroms uh, until they genocided the entire species out of existence. 40 million individuals, which seems like a low number to me, mm. but we can talk about that in the discussion section. Yeah. yeah. Um, Franklin, to his credit, is visibly disgusted and horrified. Just exhausted and appalled. The ambassador and Kieran tell Franklin it's not their fault, but it is their shame, and that's why they've hidden it, and he disagrees. By hiding it, he says, they are accomplices. Uh, when pressed for forgiveness by the ambassador, Franklin has none to offer. Only the Hayek Do can offer that, he says, and they are all dead. The reason, it turns out, that he was allowed any access to their records at all, it turns out, is that the Hayek are dying. They interbred with the Hayek Do enough that without continued interbreeding to stabilize their, the mix, their race is in decline. Franklin agrees to try and help fix the problem, but not hide their shame. First, because he can't, it's too big of a problem. But second, because it would be immoral to do so. Uh, Kieran and the ambassador relent and agree. They cannot reveal their shame, but they can let an outsider expose it, apparently. And that's the end of the episode. Okay. I So the, the, the whole thing about the, you know, oh, it would take several Alliance worlds worth of scientists to figure out the cure for this. I, I'm uh, immediately like, okay. Like, I, I can already come up with, like, the skeleton of a, like, genetic epidemiology solution to this like and that's with spending like 10 minutes mm. of brain power on it yeah where it's like like uh, like you know you could go through you could go through the records like try to identify who has the highest highest proportion of hyecto genome you know do some like you know whole exome sequencing type of mm-hmm. things do comparative stuff and like do some reconstruction yeah. and there you go yeah i have to imagine though if there were also 40 million of them there has to be graves mm-hmm. yeah, relics. That too. there yeah, has to be it, some genetic material around i'm also skeptical that if they were a spacefaring culture that none got away yeah there's just there's so many issues with this and the the very first one that i thought of was just like listen the idea that a sentient race of people who are spacefaring do not have the basic technology to handle a medical problem like this is so ridiculous at the same time looking at, you know, the world response to a big medical problem (laughs) and the lack of political will uh, to do basic things. I'm like, well, I mean, yeah, they are run by a gerontocracy. Uh, Yeah. I feel like it's the Markabs 2.0, right? Yeah. Yeah. It just, it hashtag feels bad, man. Yeah, it, whereas the thing of, like, they've dug themselves into a, like, cultural shame hole, and... Yeah. I mean, that's just a Tuesday for me. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of problems with this storyline, but I think fundamentally it it's okay. Like, yeah. it doesn't hold up yeah. in the fine details. Yeah. Because, yes. I... I and it's one of those things where it's like, I get the story you're trying to tell. I'm not going to worry too much about the details. Yeah, it, yeah. it has the impact it needs to. And I, I think from a yeah. a narrative and a viewership point of view, like it 
it is effective even if it doesn't make sense, which I feel like is the hallmark of most good sci-fi, right? In a yeah. way yeah. Of that, you know, don't look at it too much. Um, yeah, don't don't Wikipedia the fucking details and oh the God. story works. Yeah. It holds up. And I'm I'm also willing to like have a in-universe explanation of just like maybe genetics and epidemiology are not Franklin's strong suits and like maybe he just is like maybe somebody like let's just have somebody else take care or, of this or maybe their genetics are fucking bananas weird we don't yeah. know yeah. yeah maybe their genetics Some are, combination. Are, are fucking full of full of like this this could very well just be like franklin being like no i i am not qualified to do this like well we gotta, yeah weirder anyway. shit has happened and as we will see next episode does happen <laughs> on this show yeah yeah so what i do think really works in this part of the sh- the episode is that franklin's God, I hate, I hate it. Yep. Franklin's response to this is so perfect. He's just like, yeah, you can fuck off to the sun. Mm-hmm. He is yeah. uncompromising in his response to this, where he's like, God, no, I can't forgive you. You fucking slaughtered an entire race for and then hit it. horseshit reasons and then hit it for 800 years. No, I can't forgive you. Fuck off. Like, he's completely uninterested in offering them any kind of absolution whatsoever. Uh, yeah. Which I appreciate. Yeah. You are still participating and benefiting from this thing that happened in the system that you are continuing to uphold. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I Considering how, like, the show has approached from, like, a narrative and, like, moral standpoint, like, Lockley, I was expecting Franklin to, like, give them an out here. But no, thank you for, like, at least drawing the line there at, like, maybe not fascism, but definitely genocide is the thing we are not going to forgive. Mm. Well, especially on a show where the protagon- the ostensible protagonist is John, <laughs> woo, war crime, Sheridan. <laughs> the the fact that they drew such a firm line at, at genocide is good i'm i'm not dropping yeah. the yes. dime it's great yeah. but it's like i i legitimately was not expecting them to be that firm about it because i don't know i would not have put it past sheridan to have scraped the shadows off the face of the galaxy i mean that's the thing though is the shadows have been presented as evil so from the narrative standpoint it's okay for us to genocide them right right yeah where the you know the high octo you don't get any information about them and it's the you know it's the hey these are our people that you know we were you know could intermarry with and inter interbreed and all that kind of stuff where it's like no, these are just us who look a little different. You don't know you yeah. can't fuck a shadow. I mean, <sighs> we're not going down this right now. <laughs> that that's for uh, that's for the bonus episodes after uh, y'all finish the main run. I I do have one one substantial problem with this like B plot, um, where it is potentially a Franklin problem. So Jude, you're going to be happy here. Hit me, please. Um, the the Hayek. Uh, you mentioned in your summary actually that the the like ambassador is like, oh well, we have to give us the give this data because otherwise we won't be we will won't be allowed to stay in the alliance, and that seems like super against what Delenn and Jakar mm. would want with setting up this whole thing. It's supposed to be in the same spirit as sharing technology. Yeah, yeah, and which is sharing knowledge and. 
the idea of like not having these closely guarded secrets because like for example let's go back to confessions and lamentations where the <laughs> cure for the marcab plague was found in another species mm-hmm. yeah yeah and so like that like having a broad medical database would have saved the marcab yeah, yeah, like would would have would have probably helped them, and it, it's it's done in that spirit. That's what I feel like. And yeah, so. but I I feel like Delenn and Jakar would not have intended for any of the member races to be kicked out of the alliance for not handing over the medical data. Yeah, though. no, I think it's one of those things where it's like when you sign on, you know what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I don't I don't think it's a, it, it was explicitly laid out that if you don't turn over your medical data. You can't stay in the alliance, but I do think they're in a position where if they don't turn like there'll be questions because they are a race that have never turned over this data. If they don't turn over this data, it it like encourages it. It puts them in an awkward position. It encourages more investigation, right? Yeah, yeah it, it creates puts them in an awkward questions. position. Yeah, where they have to answer the question. Well, why won't you share? Like it kind they were kind of in a, a zero sum situation where they were either going to be forced to reveal it which they couldn't do or let franklin find it out or get or have to walk away from the alliance because they couldn't they weren't willing to do it themselves well and yeah i guess the other thing that's weird about it is it's like having franklin have this be his big job it feels like there should already be a ton of this already just from like the hey we have a station where all these different species live like it's an you know epidemiological nightmare already yeah they've talked about it a little bit in the past um i basically i think it basically just lives in franklin's head yeah well that's what franklin was doing before he came to b5 before or before the minbari war and he uh, spaced his notes rather than yeah. let his his notes on the minbar be taken uh, by the Earth war effort. Uh, but yeah, I think you're right. I think it mostly just lives in his head or individuals go to their own doctors because the, the races pretty jealously guard their own medical secrets yeah. rather than let mm-hmm. other races develop biomedical warfare. But I, I think the yeah. weird thing about that, though, is it's like from a... Yes, from a, a, you know, official standpoint, that would be the official standing, but there's so much intermingling and there's so much like, hey, there are all these people from various species that are just hanging mm. out here in the slums. I, I absolutely refuse to believe that Earthdome or whatever has not been, you know, grabbing people out of the, you know, slums of whatever places that they happen to be and, you know like yeah. gathering data on them and things like that. Like, well, we know there's some knowledge about it. Like we, in that episode where uh, Marcus and Franklin were down in the slums treating that one disease, mm-hmm. like they know there's some, they, they do know yeah. there are some diseases that result from mi- cl- yeah. close contact with aliens. Yeah. But it's, I think it's more like the, the spirit of this is creating a central, like a central and like thorough database. Yeah. Like, Earth probably knows, like, some very basic stuff about, like, Centauri DNA and Narn DNA, but they probably don't know a lot, or, like, their their medicals. Yeah. But they probably don't know, like, 
what does a darn diet require? Right. Uh, or, or well, and it's, they, they specifically yeah. have been talking about like bacteria and viruses. They don't know like what are the, like under what circumstances can this, can a Minbari disease jump host right. and what's, what, what species can it jump to? So if we have a, a breakout on a Narn planet, what, what, what populations do we need to warn and which populations do we need to isolate them from and things like that? Right. So yeah. Anyway, right. um, let's jump over to the other plot. Uh, yeah. Can we just uh, can we just close up uh, this plot and say that genocide is bad and fuck the genocide high. bad. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um. Let's talk about weird telepath sex stuff. Mm. I I, uh, I think on. this might I be have, the worst I, sex scene I've ever watched. Well, boy, do I have a quote for you then. All this needed was like all this needed was a weird music cut oh god of like comfortably numb or something like that (laughs) here's a quote from jms about that scene i talked to both the actors involved made sure they were okay with it and then scripted out in very detailed form oh no shot with a close set buddy just necessary crew and nobody else so here i will give jms this he got the actor's consent first then wrote the scene yeah. I'm uncomfortable with how closely he apparently scripted it to to result in that garbage scene. But I, I do appreciate that he got the consent of the actors first mm-hmm. to write this scene and that he did it with a closed set and only the necessary crew. That's the right way to do that. Yeah. From like a yeah. from like a working with talent. It's just a badly written scene. It really is. It's really bad. And the, it's so bad. Uh, and well, the, it, the phrase scripted it out in very detailed form is horrifying so, to me. So, you know, have you ever done that improv game where you basically you hold up your hands to another person and you're standing there and like you slowly like push your hands back and forth without trying to actually push back and forth? Oh, God, I hate it's, this. So imagine imagine that, but with their fingers intertwined, but doing that and it just <laughs> well, <fucking. laughs> while and with just like zero atmosphere zero chemistry it was like what's i don't i don't understand but richard but richard don't you know what it's like when telepaths make love oh no why I mean, you let down I mean, all if, of your barriers. If this, is, if, this scene, you. if this scene is any indication, I'm glad I, of, that I don't know because, good God, it's a moment of pure and total clarity. I, is that why their eyes look like they're about a thousand miles away? Of just like, yeah, we're doing this. Um, oh, what I God. what bog, boggles my mind about this scene the most. Is the direction that must have been given in this scene had to have been awful because both of those. Okay. Patricia Tallman's acting can be a little bit inconsistent. Mm -hmm. She can be great, but she can also be a little bit like, I don't know. But the guy who plays Byron, whatever his name is, he has one setting and that is like Shakespeare. Yeah. Shakespeare on My Chemical Romance. To 11. That's where he's at. That is his setting. And more importantly, the two of them have legitimate chemistry. Like they're like the two of them as actors work well together. Mm -hmm. They play well together. How is it possible that in this scene, 
They have roughly as much chemistry as Sinclair and Sakai. It they was look like so they look like bad. two mannequins and like two so mannequins bad. just bumping it, plastic together. Yeah, it's it's so bad. Oh my I, god! I I was like, have we seen Tony Dow before? Or he he's directed multiple episodes before this. I guarantee <sighs> you, he was not excited to do this sex scene. I, it was um. Yeah, no, it's it's bad. I'm like really that's all I can say. It's it's well, and I I feel like there's just it's very statically shot, I guess would be the way that I would describe yeah. it where it's very like Well, they're also not actually fucking. She's it, just sort yeah, of sitting it, there? Well, I mean it's it's implied. That, I think I, for that I will say this is a 1997 8 whatever uh, on television. There, yeah, I think they're right. already pushing it for like whatever, whatever season five had moved to. It was on TNT, right? One of the T, one of the T st- cable stations. Yeah, I'm just com- I'm comparing it in my head to the sex scenes in Buffy. Yeah, Buffy gets Buffy wrangles the f- she climbs, what's his name, f- with the initiative <laughs> like a goddamn jungle gym in that one episode. In the yeah. episode in the haunted house, and the episode where the where the, it's the haunted house where they're fucking the whole time. Yeah, man, she goes fucking primal on him. That shit, that had chemistry, and well, there was there was some definite gyration in that episode. Yeah, it just it, but just this is also this this but really that, felt, that was also Buffy, and this is V five, which I will say is possibly I mean, with the exception of Jakar, the least sexy show. Uh, well, it just yeah. Now see, now see if we'd had that scene with Jakar, Chef Kiss. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna talk about Jakar's nightlife in the next episode. <laughs> I I do want to talk about Lita though. Like, other than this scene, she's very good in this episode. I thought, yeah, her she... righteous indignation in this episode is so goddamn satisfying. It's so good. Well, it. It's like she may be in a cult, but she's not wrong, you know, was was kind yeah. of yeah. my whole vibe for this, where it's yeah. like she's finally acting uh, with agency that it's like, hey, yeah. this is what she wants and she's doing what she wants and she's telling everyone else, hey, fuck you. Um, and yeah. it's great. That's the thing about Byron's whole thing is the only thing that I think is culty about Byron's thing is Byron. Like well, the no, idea, I mean, like they've got the weird like group love bombing yeah. shit. Yeah, but yes, they do. But I think the idea of telepaths wanting a colony of their own, and the idea of telepaths wanting their own community, and all of Can, the stuff that she says he believes in. Actually, the the one thing that distances it from like cultishness for me in this episode is that once Byron goes into the brig, he loses all control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right boy howdy does that, yeah that like he's out of their sight for like 30 seconds and they go and murder someone yeah it's it, it very much makes me feel like he has he has a charisma but it's more about the message he has sold them of yeah they deserve a community of their own and his whole message of like passive nonviolence is his thing and he can generally keep them on message when he's there but yeah, the second he's out of sight, they're like, okay, let's go fucking bust some heads. And he knows that they will, too. That, like, he knows that he has, like, as soon as he's gone, they're just gonna shank a dude. Or, or light him on fire in his own mind. You know. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think the thing for me is so many of the trappings of it, because they've got sort of the telepath thing and because they've got this like strong connection to each other and the ways that they demonstrate that with the, you know, the sort of like group hugs and the touching and the, all that. And the silence. Oh, yeah. I do like that bit that they, there's so much silence in the community. I really yeah. like that bit. But it adds to the cultish feeling, though. Right. It, it yeah, adds it to that uncomfortable feeling when you're someone who experienced the, you know, non telepathic version of that. And it's just like the ooh. Because at, at least, like, they might be having conversations or whatever inside their heads, but at least from, like, observing it through the lens of the camera, it seems like everybody is very quiet and passive. Yeah. Uh, we should probably wrap this episode <laughs> yeah. up. Um, so, I have, a, I have a I know that face, but it's not for a face. So Tony Dow, who directed this episode, did a couple other episodes of Babylon 5. Um, he also directed the episode of DS9 where uh, Esri tries to solve a murder with a te- with a gun that teleports bullets. Oh, that one! Yeah, he <laughs> That's is a wild also one. he is also was an actor, and notably, he has one show that he appeared on two hundred and thirty four episodes. What? Whoa! He was Wally Cleaver in Leave It to Beaver. Wait, what? <laughs> Wow. I was like, I was like, why is Leave It to Beef? Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> uh, this is and a like wild the- one for I Know That Face. Uh, I have a great entry for this one. Uh, this episode has like five actors in it that have like six items in their IMDb page. They did like an episode of Babylon 5, an episode of Buffy, NCIS, LA Law, and then like nothing. And then you get to Security Pig. If you remember at the start of the episode, there's the guy that is busting the telepath's chops. And he literally, he's in there as security guard. He, I, I call him Security Pig, but he's like in there as security guard. This man's name is Skip Stelrecht. And I, you would be forgiven for not recognizing this guy because he has done nothing that you would recognize his face from. <laughs> but... Look at his IMDb page and it will blow your ding dang mind. <laughs> he has been in virtually every anime or Japanese video game that got an English dub you have ever fucking heard. Notable highlights include voicing Vicious in Cowboy Bebop oh. uh, and in, and also voicing Dinocrates in the underappreciated show Rain the Conquer, or as I like to call it, Aeon Flux 2. Gay in Macedonia. <laughs> uh, he also voiced someone in virtually every episode of um, Naruto. I don't remember what the character's name was, but he's in like almost every episode. Not Naruto himself. I would have remembered that, but like big guy or flex guy or something like that. Believe it. I don't know. Uh... <sighs> yeah, this guy's voice acting resume is fucking bananas. He has done so much anime. He, and- he then, you know, even rivals Byron then. Yeah, I was yeah, just going to say, because no. Byron has a ton of stuff. Yeah, no, it's it's easily rivals Byron for, like, it's it's wild how much stuff he's been in. So, um, all right, let's do, let's fucking do Day of the Dead. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Day of the Dead, episode eight of season five. 
Written by J. Mike. Wait, no, 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 it isn't. Nope, nope, nope. Written by Neil Gaiman. This episode is, as I told my wife, it is the Neil Gaiman's ass, like Neil Gaiman bullshit ever that watches like a Star Trek episode in the best kind of way. (laughs) And then you get the guest stars who show up and it's just like, what the fuck is even happening right now? It is delightful. Then let's go into that. Uh, this is also directed by Doug Leffler, who I believe is a return to the show. He's part of our regular rotating cast of directors. Yep. We open with two people arriving at customs. They are, as one can guess from their bits, Rebo and Zudi. There is much them. discussion of religious practices <laughs> on the station, and Lonnie right is given a sugar skull, being informed that this is the Brakiri Day of the Dead. Uh, Lanier visits Delenn, the former of whom is between training cycles as a ranger. They talk about the Day of the Dead, where the Rikiri honor those who have died. Sheridan is meanwhile honoring Rebo and Zudi, who are apparently a crack-up to everyone except Lockley. Jakar seems very perturbed by something, maybe the fact that Lockley lacks a sense of humor. No, she's the only one with a sense of humor in that room. Uh, Lockley then meets with the Procuri ambassador, who wishes to purchase Babylon 5 so that it can be part of the Procuri homeworld during the cer- their ceremony. Jakar interrupts their discussion, saying that he has realized what is happening. He says that this is something dangerous and tries to stop her from selling Babylon 5 for the evening. This is very... This is, it's very madcap. Yeah, but it's, it cements her decision to go through with it, is what yeah, it does. Yeah, she's like... You know what? That's like, yeah, I know with I have religious tolerance where she goes through with the transaction. Rebo and Zudi visit Sheridan Delenn for dinner. Uh, the latter of whom who is absolutely delighted by Zudi's grasp of Minbari humor. As the night continues on, a red force field seems to have appeared where the delineation between Babylon 5, air quotes, and the Brakiri homeworld, air quotes, on Babylon 5 exists. Jakar, who refuses to sleep in the Procuri side of the station, requests to sleep in CNC. <laughs> the red glow permeates throughout the affected section of the station, and in Londo's quarters, he is talking to a portrait of the First Emperor. When he gets up to investigate the red glow, a hand pours him a fresh drink. It is Adira! Londo tells Adira that he is to be Emperor, but he would give it up for her back, because he, you know, she died. She was murdered. Uh, Garibaldi, meanwhile, wakes up to find someone is using his shower. He pulls his gun, which he keeps under his pillow for some goddamn reason. <laughs> he goes to the shower and finds Dodger, the the excellent side character who deserved better than Garibaldi's dick. <laughs> yeah, that's literally in my notes um, for this episode. <laughs> yeah, she just she deserved deserved better. Um, she remarks that Garibaldi got older, and Garibaldi's like, "Yeah, you died." She's like, yeah, reports of that were not exaggerated at all. I'm dead, but I'm back, bitch. At least at least she doesn't compliment his ass this time. Mm. God, yeah. Um, she insists that it's no trick, just her. Lockley, meanwhile, is trying to contact anyone to no avail, and instead finds someone named Zoe, who she is familiar with. We find that Zoe was someone from Lockley's past when she was a runaway uh, who died of an overdose. Lockley expresses regret at the partying and her attic lifestyle. Carwin, meanwhile, in regular land in D5, contacts Sheridan, who informs him that a part of the station is, I don't know, missing. The force field has displaced that entire part of the station. 
Sheridan visits the barrier and tries to chuck a fire extinguisher at it, but it bounces right back at him. Lanier is in his quarters meditating, and we hear a voice. Oh, fucking. Oh, come on. This motherfucker again. <laughs> I have been waiting for this. Uh, yeah. Uh, it is yeah. Mr. Morden. <laughs> finally finally i've been waiting for it because you were like oh it's the last we'll ever see of him well and- about that <sighs> linear confronts morton is like dude you work for the shadows and morton's like i worked for a lot of people i did a lot of things i just want to make people happy which honestly i kind of love dead morton because he's even more of a shit mm-hmm. um He's a smug shit, which is the worst kind. When Lanier asks him why he came back, Morton was like, uh, Del- I'm here to tell you shit. Like, Delenn will never love you. <laughs> Lanier's so cool. like, yeah, I know this. And and Morton's response is, yeah, but does your heart know that? Uh, it's, 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 it's a great scene, because he's like, Lanier's like, of course I know this, and Morton's just like, do, Do you, you though? though? Yeah. This is like, it has like extreme evil John Mulaney energy. Oh my God. It's very good. Yeah. Dead Morden is the best because he, he knows that he's untouchable and he knows exactly. that the things he gets to say to Lanier are so awful that he's like, guess what? You are going to just get fucked up by this. And I think that's great. Lanier tries to leave because he's like, I don't have to stay in this conversation. And then the force field chucks him right back. And it's like, no, you have to live with this conversation. Sheridan, meanwhile, uh, visits CNC and learns about the arrangement between the Procuri. And he orders the Procuri homeworld contacted. Meanwhile, back in Lanier's quarters, Morden says the distance between them and the stage is now like 200 light years. We get an actual number. We get a direct contradiction with that. So I just choose to believe that Morden is a dumb gay who doesn't know math. I think he's just <laughs> exaggerating for a fact. He's just like, eh, yeah, you know, it's a couple hundred light years, whatever. Yeah. Morden insists that he's not the bad guy here and that Sheridan has miscast him. And he expresses the surprise that Sheridan isn't there, since, you know, Sheridan's dead. <laughs> and he tells Lanier that Lanier will betray the Rangers at some point. Lanier's like, no, you're full of shit, and you refuse to believe any of this. Don't worry, you just have to wait for a chicken to yell three times. It'll, it, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Lanier refuses to talk to Morton anymore, and Morton's like, eh, you're lost. You got any coffee here? Uh, in Lockley's quarters... Uh, Zoe explains that they are now part of the Procuri homeworld, so they must be far away from the station. Lockley um, uses her admin access to reroute power to her room, and it turns out that Lockley's like security passcode is Zoe's dead. It's yeah. this is really grim. Oh yeah, um, that it's in my notes, and it's real bad. In Garibaldi's quarters, he chit-chats with Dodger about Lee's because, listen, if you bring uh, your one-time booty call back from the dead, the thing you want to do is again talk about your mm-hmm. ex. <laughs> is she his ex? Are they together at this point? What's the I, question marks? I mean, I don't care. I'm just asking for clarification. I, I, I want care. to know nothing about Garibaldi's love life. 
I mean, I feel like this is this is like a corollary to the Ghostbusters rule, though, of, you know, if your booty call comes back as a ghost and is going away in the morning, you say yes, right? Like, that's... Yeah. Londo made the right decision yes. here. Like, we're gonna... We'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, yeah, Londo. Luckily, he calls him and is like, yo, hack into the phone company and like relay a message to Babel, like relay a call to Babylon Five, and he's like, "Sure, I guess I don't have anything better to do." Meanwhile, Londo and Adira are fucking. That's much. That's it. Just <laughs> yeah. they're fucking. They're just having the best time. They are getting wonderful closure. They are they're in love. They're great. Luckily, decides to kill Londo's boater with like a general PA announcement, and Adira informs him that like. You know, she that like, you know, this is all going to pass. And then when the night is over, she'll be gone. And then they go back to fucking. Yeah. Which, God, Londo just best. (laughs) Uh, Garibaldi is able to reroute a message to Babylon 5 and returns his attention to Dodger. And he says you'll have it in 15 minutes. And the the timeline here is is pretty wibbly wobbly because it's like, okay, he does that presumably in 15 minutes where does the rest of the well we'll get to it but yeah where where does yeah. it go it, it's who knows uh meanwhile back in like at the at the dinner um rebo and zudi talk to delen about how much they admire john and delen and they want to give up comedy to do something more important politics they can't possibly suck at politics more than they suck at comedy so go for it <laughs> john insists that what they do is important that politics just exists so that people have a freedom to enjoy life and things like comedy. Uh, Lockley's message then comes in and she explains to John that she's sure the anomaly will end at the Procuri Planetary Sunrise. And John tells her to tell him about it when it's all over. As the sunrise <laughs> approaches, Morden tells Lanier goodbye and to think of him as a brief electromagnetic anomaly that just happened to predict the future. And that all the things he said were true. As Dodger and Garibaldi sing poetry, Garibaldi sees the end is approaching, and he says that he hopes they'll see each other again. Zoe is preparing to leave, and she admits to Lockley that um, her overdose was suicide, and asks Lockley not to hate her. Lockley says that she never could. After the sunrise, the everything just returns to normal. Sheridan is like really perplexed about this, as all the people affected describe their experiences like intensely personal. John isn't sure what happens, and there have been some scientific explanations offered, but no one really knows, and we're not going to give a shit. Lockley tells him that she has a message for Sheridan from someone named Kosh. When the long night comes, return to the end of the beginning. God damn it, Kosh. Just like... For once, please. Just like once give a real sentence jakar approaches lockley and says he regrets his choices he feels the people who were within the precarious grounds appear fulfilled this morning as rebo and zudi leave londo invites them to his coronation that's it that's the episode there's there's like some other bits that go on between there but we'll talk about this there's there's so much going on with this i mean first first up like first thing in the episode we got to talk about penn and teller um, yeah, yeah. This is um, yeah. So okay, like, that's the part that I've been jumping around. Is that so? I know this face. We're gonna do this here. We're gonna do this here. So in 2011, when I turned 21, we went to Vegas, and Pendulette is the only Babylon Five 
guest star who I have shared breathing air with. <laughs> I was we we went to we we went to see Penn & in Vegas. We had dinner at a seafood restaurant. I cannot remember what it is. It was ten years ago, and at the table right next to us was Penn. <laughs> now, which one's Penn? Is that the tall one or the tall one? Okay, yeah, the tall one. Here is my belief about this episode. Neil Gaiman wrote all the Rikiri ship, and JMS shoehorned in Penn and Teller's Rebo and Zooty shit, because I refuse to believe that Neil Gaiman, who is not perfect, Neil Gaiman has his misses, but I refuse to believe that Neil Gaiman could write something as fucking awful as everything that Rebo and Zooty do. Uh, uh, yeah, it's they're they are so bad. They are beyond cringe. They I hate every moment they are on screen, and I get that you're supposed to hate them. Are you like? Are you? So, so I don't can, know. I'm going to refer heavily to JMS speaks on this one. First of all, apparently Rito and Z, like the the actual like script was written before they got Penn and Teller. What? Wow. That's wild. I mean, they must have written it with Penn and Teller in mind, though. They didn't. They were like, they were originally like, okay, who do we get to play these folks? And they're like, what if we get a comedy duo? And they just reached out and Penn and Teller said yes. I just... It's like how we get all of our guests for this show. Yeah, you uh... just shoot your shot and sometimes it works. <laughs> and apparently, like, GMS is, like, comparing Penn and Te- like, the, 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 re- the Rebo and Zudi thing to, like, the Three Stooges, where it's like... Some people get it and some people don't. And I'm just like, mm. is that really? I mean, because part of the, the hard part about it, like to, to be absolutely fair, you are you have set up that this hilarious comedy duo is going to be a thing. And then you have to write the joke. It, it's like it's the same reason why when you watch a sitcom and there is a joke that you know, is absolutely hilarious or absolutely bombs. They always cut to the person telling it at the punchline and then the reactions to it. Right. Because yeah, yeah. it's the noodle incident. Yeah. 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 It's the noodle. You know, incident. They, they would have been better off if they just had Penn and Teller write their own material. I mean, or alternatively, probably. don't put Rebo and Zudi on the show. Yeah. There, there was, I, I think that there was really, <laughs> there was just no reason for them to be there. Um, and, and honestly, the screenshot of Lockley standing there just with the, I cannot fucking believe I am having to sit here and watch this next to everyone else who's in various states of, oh, this is nice. Or, oh, this is hilarious. And Sheridan, like, you know, he's got good taste in war crimes, but bad taste in humor, I guess. Um, just... Well, it's 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 dad humor though, right? No, no, it's not. It's not because that's my humor. <laughs> like alien dicks and dad jokes. That's mine, and Sheridan's got none of that in this. Uh. Rebo and Zooty is like, who thinks a fucking like, like the wrong hat on the wrong head is funny? That's not funny. That's just dumb. I hate. You know who thinks that's funny? Who you know who thinks that's funny? Garibaldi, oh, who is fucking dying. No. He's even throwing out the the goddamn punch the 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 catchphrase when they walk in. Yeah. He's like, Zooty Zoot Zoot. Yeah. And I'm just like, yeah, that's who likes yeah. it. Fucking yeah. cops. <laughs> oh god, and and <laughs> I love 
I hate that this episode makes me like have emotions about Lockley. Yeah, that's it's, that's I, the other it's thing. It's unfair. I think this is how dare I think it? like so I I I have an idea for how this episode works. Is that you just like go lead into it like okay, what this episode is, is this is a season 3 DS9 episode. <laughs> okay. Yes. It really abs- it absolutely is. What you do to make it good, like like actually like legit great is you cut out the 18 minutes of Rebo and Zudi and you make everybody on the 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 station have like emotional catharsis through like various people coming back have it be the whole station not just Um, not just a portion yeah apparently like all of the the interactions and people that were chosen were like interactions that Gaiman wanted to play with Mm. Um, so like, like I was like really like Morden and Lanier. This is a weird pull. Okay, but it works. But it works. It works yeah. so well. Yeah, yeah. I and especially with that dark thread that Lanier has running through mm-hmm. him, right? Where mm-hmm. you have the thing of like you can see them together, and it's like. Lanier's got his fingers in his ears going, la, 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 I can't hear you. And then you know that there's a little bit in him that's saying, like, tell me more, Morden. Yeah, where it's like, it's, yeah. it's Bill Mummy, right, is the, yeah. the actress name. Yeah. yeah. Does such a great job of having that, like, of, of playing the person who believes that they are a good person who is afraid that they're not. Um, yeah. And woof like that that was like that that whole interaction is just so good because morden is just there like you know he's doing the i'm just here to tell you things like you know no skin off my back if you don't listen to it but he knows that he's getting to lanier yeah yeah percent yeah i really like all the interactions i think they're all played super well if i had been doing this episode i would absolutely have left off the rebo and sudi stuff obviously because i fucking hate them goddamn waste of time uh and i would have given there's no i don't really see i love that jakar is like this is hell no Mm -hmm. i'm sleeping on at cnc but i do kind of wish we could have seen who jakar would have seen but i do kind of like that he's like spooked by the whole thing and he's just like nopes out on the cnc i also like that he like like truly is like damn i missed out Yeah. yeah i wish we could have had sinclair back for one of them yeah, uh, that would have been nice. That would have been the icing on the cake. I I understand why like there's yeah. no way in hell, but that's my that's my dream. It's like yeah. if if say like maybe if Sheridan had been behind the Bahiri veil and Sinclair had come to talk to him, who would Sheridan have seen? I don't think it would have been Sinclair though. Delenn might have seen Sinclair, but I don't think Sheridan would have. I don't feel like he really has a character who's who's there. I I would have personally loved to have seen. Uh, it would have been Ducat for her, probably. Yeah, mm. she would have she would yeah. have talked to Ducat. You know who I think Sheridan probably would have talked to is the real Anna. Oh is, yeah. yeah, I think so. So he, I think I think it would have been well. I I think for for Sheridan it would have been Kosh. Interesting. Mm. Mm. Because like Kosh had a message for him, yeah, that yeah. might have that might have been it. Yeah, I mean, if, yeah, I don't know. If if I were gonna like pick a character that 
Jakar had to talk to, I would say his father. Yeah, see, I would have paid good money uh, to see Jakar get like, uh, to have a moment with his father like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I just want to see fucking Kotsilis do anything heavy with anybody. Because he can fucking do anything. I think another one that would have been interesting for, for Jakar is Kartashia. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And that that would have had, that would have been really, really interesting. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I found really interesting with the lighting, too, was there were a couple of characters where they had the red lighting. Cause it, cause yes. it was, it was just Lockley that had the red lighting at the beginning, I think that really sort of sets that sort of off putting unnatural tone. But then by the end, I think everybody's in regular lighting. And so it, it was but an interesting a Jurassic choice. in that red lighting yeah. though, because it made him look so much younger, what, like whatever they had with the lighting angles or stuff like that. He looked a lot younger for some re- like, I don't know exactly why, but it, it, it was really an interesting look and mm-hmm. it really highlighted like at you know, that scene where he's telling Adira and he's like, I'm going to be emperor and I wish I still had you. Mm-hmm. It's such an interesting arc for for him where it's like he's sort of gotten to the point where, you know, he's been terrible and he's now sort of made up for it and he's sort of trying his best i think at this point um and not being just Uh a complete dick all the time and it's like you see this moment of how would his life be different if he were truly happy and if he didn't Mm -hmm. have to place everything you know like essentially his his species first or you know his sort of nationalism i guess first if that was not his top priority you know, if he had been allowed to take a different route and and make that choice in that way, who could he have been? Um, and you get that glimpse of it. And also, any time that Danica McKellar is there is just awesome. Um, and he doesn't deserve Adira at all. But you know, it's it's just it's, that's what makes Adira uh, great, though, and that's what makes their story so good mm-hmm. is that she knows who he is. Yeah, uh, she knows. They both know that he's kind of a piece of shit. <laughs> And that he doesn't deserve the happiness she brings him. And she still loves him for that. Yeah. She, in spite of that. Yeah. She like, she just, she just loves him. That's, that's just what, it's a very pure, simple thing. They just, they, yeah. that's just a fact of the matter. And it costs her her life and it costs him just as much in a lot of ways because yeah. he, a lot of awful things happen because of her death. And. Yep. It is. I, I think it's why it works. Yeah. I know I, it, it works for me. Well, I, I think, you know, the, they're doing such like heavy storytelling with, with just a little bit amount of time. Cause they actually don't have a ton of screen time in this episode. Um, yeah. but it yeah. works so well. And then like, you compare that to like the way that they give Lockley a backstory where you're kind of like, Oh, you learn a lot about her in just this short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that mm-hmm. that password being Zoe's dead, to, and you, like you know that it's 20 years later, is such a... It feels like 
a very artificial narrative thing that is used as a gut punch to to drive home you know that that okay this is very much a part of who Lockley is and you know that as a viewer as it happens but it's still just like god damn though like that's yeah woof. it works yeah i am like editor-in-chief of the I fucking hate Lockley newsletter. <laughs> and, but I, here's what I'll say about this. I think the last, this episode in contrast with, is it strange revelations where she, where she gives her, her Nazi speech or is that learning curve? Whatever. Yeah, whatever. One of the, we one all of those the, two. We all we know the Nazi about. speech. Yeah. One of they're, those two. They're sort of blending together. At this it was point, strange sorry. revelations. It was strange revelations because I, I looked uh, after we recorded the last episode I went on the internet and I Googled around and was like, what are, what is JMS doing with Lockley? Like, what was his intention? Was he mm. trying to make her a villain? Was he trying to make her a protagonist? Like, what was his intention? And all of the hits were, fuck Lockley. She's a Nazi. This speech is insane. Like, it was almost universal condemnation. And a lot of it was pinned on that one episode. And I think what, that episode, in contrast with Day of the Dead shows, is JMS didn't have a fucking clue what he was doing with her. Mm-hmm. In the sense that he didn't know how to nail her arc. But the minute you put her in the hands of somebody that doesn't care about her arc, is just trying to give her a a narrative moment, is trying to, has yeah. the bones of who she is, 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 has been told very basic things about who her character is, and is trying to give her a moment of, yeah, this of, is the narrative whole. moment for her that we got with Sheridan's sister coming to the station. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's, Except that it's in fucking episode eight. Yeah, yeah. It's the yeah. I, it's a it's a it's a whole narrative moment that makes her look like a real person. And yeah, it but it's written by someone else, and I don't remember episode nine or ten or eleven, but I'm <laughs> willing to bet that JMS is not going to suddenly figure out how to write Lockley. I'm going to bet that it's going to stay the bumpy road that we have had with Lockley this far. Something I will say is that, like, I think it is for a person who has never written, for for a writer who has never written those characters, any of these characters before, the fact that, like, Gaiman goes this hard in 25 minutes of content... Mm -hmm. Uh, with like three char- like two characters who have already got a lot going on yeah. and one character who I would say this is like sort of the defining character moment for yeah. her like goes this hard in like 25 minutes of show I I, I will like you know I don't love everything on Gamers but I like this is this is why mad respect. This is yeah. why in the nineties he was hot as shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like like this is this is Gaiman like when he's doing Sandman. Yeah. Gaiman yeah. like you can it's you know, everybody everybody likes different things, but I think you have to respect Gaiman's talent when it comes to storytelling and specifically I think his ability to he I think in particular one of his strengths is being able to deliver impactful moments in concise packages Mm. yeah Um, he has a real ability to take a 
to wrap a really emotional moment up in a very clever and tight way and deliver it in a way that feels almost supernaturally impactful in a very lean way. Because he doesn't, he's not like a super like uh, effusive or wordy writer, but he still manages to bowl you over more often than not. And I feel like a lot of a lot of the stuff that I've read by him that I've really liked really takes advantage of sort of the supernatural as a way to frame things to say there's mystery of what's going on here, but the characters embrace the emotional truth of what's happening. Um, so like you look at, you know, Lanier and Morden and it's like this weird thing is happening. Morden shows up And Lanier is at first kind of like, okay, this isn't happening. But then is just like, okay, well, if this is happening, then I'm going to react to you because it doesn't matter if it's real or not. The things that he is saying are touching on things in Lanier that, you know, are important or deep Mm -hmm. to the character. And I think it's the same way with all of the other sort of experiences that they're having is it's like, Wando is just like, holy crap, it's, it's you, it's Adira. I, I don't care what this is. I love you, you know, and, and so you, you get those, it's, it's very, it's a, it's a way to set all those things up really quickly. The the only one who doesn't immediately accept what's going on is Garibaldi. Which is perfect for his character, right? Of like, he's a, he's a douche. Yep. And he's paranoid. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Like, of course he's immediately going to jump to like, she's a robot spy. Yeah. We're coming up on two hours. Do we have anything else we want to say about this episode? Uh, I had two things. So the first one, going back to Penn and Teller, in the speech or whatever, Sheridan says something like, you know, humor is is universal and, you know, it's blah, 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 blah. And like literally the next time that we see those two characters come in, they make the joke that Sheridan is like, what? And uh delen <laughs> is laughing hysterically at and they're like ah oh, yes well because humor is very tailored based on the culture and it was just like you literally just said that humor is universal <laughs> really and good. made a huge point yeah. of it yeah I, what that's funny they basically burned sheridan that's funny god the one thing the one thing that i'll say positive about the like rebo and duty shit is that I will treasure Mira Furlan laughing hysterically mm. and trying to explain that joke forever. Yes. It's so it, good. It's, it very much has the it very much has the 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 vibe of like someone trying to uh, of a French person explaining that uh poison and fish sound the same in French. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, and and legitimately the funniest thing that happens in this entire episode despite having Penn and Teller on there even if you like Penn and Teller um is when Sheridan throws the fire extinguisher at the wall and it sort of jumps <laughs> in and Why? then like of course they're not going to show it shooting back out because that would be hard to film so they show the wall like z- you know gooping in and then they just cut to a shot of him ducking as the fire extinguisher goes <laughs> flying past his head and it is the funniest thing in this episode oh yeah I, I don't know what that says about the pet and teller bits but it says they're not funny i mean <laughs> yeah okay i do have one last thing that i want to that i want to put on 
is that Jakar's nightwear is fantastic. Oh my god, yes. He looks so comfy. Well, it's like yeah, he looks he like he's ready to do a production of A Christmas Carol on the Enterprise D. Like, it's just, he's <laughs> ready to go. Picard's going to meet him there, and they're going to be like, wait, shit, who called the understudy? Like, uh, oh, man, can you imagine Jakar and Picard on Ryza together? Oh, my God. <laughs> They, they would have so much Jamaharo. I mean, he he played that, that, right that fanfic for me. Because on that would be the deepest of V's. Oh my god, <laughs> yes. Well, and it's like Andreas Katsulas was uh, Tomald or Tomar or something like that. Was like was a mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Commander uh, was a fantastic Romulan commander, and like the presence that he brings to anything is just fantastic. Yeah, no, he's he's amazing. The the other Jakar thing I want to say is, I it's completely bonkers and completely in character that Jakar would be like, nope, I don't want to be in my quarters tonight, so I'm going to sleep in C and C. Well, this is the best idea but, I've have for where to. But sleep. But I think like you can justify that by getting to. Well, I don't know if justify it, but like it works. Because Corwin or whatever the hell his name is, is there practicing with a bowler hat to try and do hat tricks. And yeah, that yeah, moment yeah. alone and like, is worth it because it's like, what a fucking dweeb. Like, you know? Yeah. Corwin is a dweeb. I wish we got more of Corwin. My biggest regret in Babylon 5 is that we never got more of Corwin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah. There are so many characters on this show that I would happily shave like three minutes an episode out of their storylines, not even talking about Garibaldi and Franklin. Like, obviously, (laughs) obviously I would cut those characters out in their entirety and just have more wacky bridge hijinks with Corwin. But like so many like side bit characters I would have shaved time off of just to give us like an extra 90 seconds of Corwin every episode. I feel like though he's, he is too good for, he is too good to be ruined by how bad the show is sometimes. If that makes sense. <laughs> like fair. I kind of love. Yeah. Cause he, he could have a Franklin done to yeah. him where he doesn't have a lot of screen time. So they're going to shove weird stuff onto him. Uh, and yeah, said, like the purity. screen time is like, him snarking at yeah. Ivanova. Well, and, yeah. Or like Jakar shows up in the middle of the night being like, can I crash here? And he's just like, fuck it. Why not? I mean, the, after the whole, you know, like, oh, God, is Ivanova asking me on a date thing? Like, he's just <laughs> he's just perfect. Like of the the yeah. you don't need to see much of him. You know, his whole deal and the times when he shows up and he's just like. Okay, he's like the he's the perfect ideal of the lower decks thing without doing a lower decks episode, you know. Yeah. yeah. Although they did do a lower. Decks oh yes, episode. which was we talked about. Oh, that. And it was so. I good. love that episode. Yeah. Okay. Um, we're gonna we're gonna wrap here. Um. <laughs> all right. Um. Richard, where can people find you on the internet? Uh. Okay. So you can find me at. R. Kreutzlandry uh, on Twitter, and uh, presumably someone will add that to the show notes, uh, Sathras, uh, yeah. because it's hard to spell. And uh, you will find all of my thoughts and terrible puns there. Um, They're so and bad. If you wanna, They're they so really bad. are. Uh, I also love corn, um, not just puns. 
uh and weird fish stuff there's also the thread of uh the thread of babylon 5 light bulb jokes oh yes uh i did that a while back we'll put that we'll put that in the <laughs> we'll put that in the, the show notes yeah. as well um some of them are good uh much like the show uh and uh, if you want to check out, uh, like I mentioned earlier, Descent into Midnight, the alien sea creatures with psionic powers, uh, check out at DIMRPG on Twitter. Uh, it's very cool. It's PBTA. You can download the quick start guide if you want to play it now, or you can follow the updates on Kickstarter. Thanks so much for coming on, Richard. It was a pleasure. Awesome. Yes, this is fun. Yes. I oh. had a blast. I I got to write some hilarious stuff in my notes on my phone <laughs> as I was watching this these two episodes and going, God fucking damn it, it's a Franklin episode in the first ten seconds of uh of watching the first one and then going, Oh no, it's this episode. Uh when we got to the It's a wild pair. Yeah, it really is. It really is. It was a lot. Um, all right. So next time we are going to be covering episodes 9 and 10 of season 5. That is In the Kingdom of the Blind and A Tragedy Whoa. of Telepaths. I'm sure that one will end real well. Is that like a murder of crows? <laughs> I, I just have to assume. Um, until next time, be seeing you. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share alike no derivatives license.